Greetings, dear listeners. It's with great pleasure that we welcomed our dear friend Jamie Kerchick back onto the show this week. Jamie's got a terrific new book out about the untold history of gay Washington that's in turns harrowing, fascinating, and insightful. Best of all, it's compulsively readable. The first part of the episode is all about the book, the untold story of the secret city and how the national security state both brought immense suffering on countless individuals and helped shape the consciousness not only of gay people, but of the country as a whole. We debate the nature of progress, the heartlessness of politics, and to what extent we should be optimistic about America. In the bonus episode, available to paying subscribers only, we go deeper on the question of moral progress. Have we learned anything from past moral panics like the red and lavender scares? Will the culture war over trans rights spiral out of control? And is queer ideology homophobic? As always, to get access to the full episode, please become a paying member at wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. On to the show. All right. I mean, um, look, Jamie, uh, I was telling you before we started rolling. Um, it's a it's a funny time for our friend group. Uh, our good friend Ben Haddad got into uh, parliament in Europe. We uh, oui, oui. Yeah. And it was uh, I don't know, at least for me, it was it was, it was a proud moment. Absolutely. It was like it felt like, you know, it was a uh, it was our, 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 our crew's doing good. Yes. And then and then, you know, like uh We've all known you've been working on this book for a very long time. Uh, you even generously uh, sent me uh, a copy before you know it was published, and I, as a shitty friend, didn't actually get to reading it before then. It was much, much longer in that version that you received. But it's already I, a long book. It was much longer. But I, I do want to say, I, I don't know, Shadi, if you agree, but like it, it's interesting. It was interesting reading your book this week on the week that our our friend Ben Haddad like also had a success like I, I think it's 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 a really terrific book and it's a it's it's a kind of um I don't know it's an accomplishment I think and it's not your first book but it's 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 a and it's not like your first book was not a serious book but this is a substantial book that is uh, a masterpiece, one might say. Yeah, I mean, honestly, yeah, it's, no, and, in, in, in a way, in a way, it's it's it. it I felt, you know, I, I like if I didn't know you, I would have enjoyed the book. But knowing you as a friend, uh, I don't know. I feel I feel like weirdly proud. Thank like, you it's, very it's, much. It's, it's, it's really good. I, I really appreciate that. It took a lot of work. It's, yeah. it's, it's like the work. definitive book on the history of gay Washington, D.C. Yes. And that's really what it is. That's what it attempts yeah. to be. Yeah. And I mean, I like long books, even if you don't read all the pages, they sort of suggest a level of uh, exhaustiveness and seriousness that you really, you put every, you know, you put everything into it. So um, 615 pages and they go by pretty quickly. Yep. Um, yeah. So, but we have a lot to talk about because yeah. there's a lot of big ideas here and things that I honestly was not aware of. I felt like I learned so much about my adopted city, Washington, D.C. So it's not just a book about gay Washington. It's a book about Washington. Mm. And you use the gay experience to kind of illustrate these broader themes mm. and questions that have a lot to do with things like foreign policy. And I just didn't realize that 
Uh, I guess I just don't know a lot about my own country. I think that's what I'm getting at. Um, As a foreign policy person, why would you? Yeah. And I, I also have to say that I came out of the book, and I think we have a lot, a lot of threads to pull, to pull on in regards to this specific point. I came out of this book thinking that progress is real. Absolutely. Like, it's amazing to think, like, just 50 years ago, what was going on the fact that you had these regular purges of gay people from our government, particularly from the State Department, mm -hmm. and the fact that you also had an epidemic of suicides. Mm. People were threatened with blackmail. People were threatened about losing their jobs if, if their secret came out. And then when their secret did sometimes come out, there were a large number of suicides, which is remarkable to think that people were basically killing themselves. Um, and I don't know the exact numbers, but they were definitely more than I would have yeah. expected. And I also wasn't aware that there was someone who committed suicide in the Capitol building. And, um, you know, an episode I just simply wasn't aware of. Anyway, there's just so much here, so much here. And yeah, that, Demir, but but like lead us off like we're like cuz there's so much we can get to yeah, and so, i do want to i do want to piss off demir with my insistence on progress we'll if talk we had about any that any doubt that progress is real yeah we'll talk about it those doubts have been pushed to the you know for some of us <laughs> no but look so um you know i in in talking to you before the book came out uh you know i i i'm not sure it's the only thesis but it's an important thesis in the book it's that it's that the end of world war 2 and the emergence of the national security state uh, created a particularly toxic environment and a bad situation for gays in Washington. I mean, more broadly, because the, the scare went beyond Washington's, but you're focusing on Washington, yeah. D.C. And so, I don't know, tell us a little bit about that thesis and, and a little bit about the book from that to sort of get sure. us going on so, this. <clears throat> homosexuality in America is condemned morally, right? Because this is a Judeo-Christian country. It's a medical condition um, it's something very bad, but it doesn't become a national security threat until World War II, because that is when America starts becoming a global power. And this whole concept of national security, that doesn't really exist until World War II. America doesn't have an intelligence service until until World War II. Um, and so this is the fear that the people who have this very terrible secret are susceptible to blackmail. Whereas before it might have just been a sin and they should be ashamed of it and they should go to their priests and confess or whatever, right? Now it becomes a threat to the country. And we see this in this story that I tell of, of Sumner Wells, who's the undersecretary of state. Very, And he's basically the de facto secretary of state because Cordell Hull, the secretary of state in the Roosevelt administration, is this old kind of t tubercular guy with wooden teeth who's sick half the time and FDR doesn't like him. He's a southern senator from Tennessee. He's a, you know, he needs him there to to kind of satiate the Southern Democrats in his coalition. So he relies on Wells, and Wells is very powerful. And Wells gets uh, caught up in this, you know, gay sex scandal, and his enemies within the administration, uh, Hull and, and William Bullitt, who's a fascinating character totally in his own right. In his yeah. own right, a fascinating. Yeah. We could do a whole podcast on William Bullitt, I feel yeah. like. Um, so they try to use this against him, and it happens in 1940, right? And this is before World War II. And when, and when Bullitt brings the evidence of Wells' homosexuality to FDR, FDR's initial response is, well, Wells had been importuning uh, African-American porters on the presidential train. FDR's response is, well, he wasn't doing it on government time, was he? <laughs> right. 
Um, but then over the court, then the war starts, right? And then there's this scandal involving uh, David Walsh, the senator from Massachusetts, who's accused of patronizing a male brothel with Nazi spies. Um, and that's the first outing in American politics. The New York Post outs him. And so the, the war changes things. Now all of a sudden homosexuality becomes a threat to the country. And then by, the, by 1943, FDR can no longer protect Wells because the argument that's being used is, well, he's now a threat to the country. He's, black, he's supposedly blackmailable. There are senators on Capitol Hill who are threatening to launch an investigation. And he, find, and he has to demand um, uh, Wells' uh, resignation. There's a funny anecdote that I came across while researching this book that illustrates what, what, how sec- the notion of secrecy changed in Washington. And it, it's uh, FDR's naval aide, John McRae, who I think it's like 1940, 1941, before Pearl Harbor. He's walking down the street near the Corcoran Gallery, and which is right across the street from the White House, and there's this white paper just flying in the air, and he grabs it out, and he looks at it, and it says, Top Secret. <laughs> <laughs> and it had flown out the window of the, the old the Department of State War in the Navy, which is now the executive, the Eisenhower Executive Office building next to the White House. So just, you know, government documents just fly out the window and someone could, that's okay. kind of what Washington was like. Like there wasn't this, this real, you know, almost paranoid sense that we have to keep secrets very secret. And it doesn't even feel like a real government. When we think about the nation state now and the massive yes. bureaucracy right. and everything that's involved, I mean, not too long ago, America still wasn't, it wasn't, it, Obviously, it was advanced for the time, sure. but it's just remarkable to think that basic protocols were not actually implemented. And Washington was like a sleepy southern town. It was not yeah. the capital of the free world. Yeah, segregated, racist, was, like yeah, yeah all, exactly. that. all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, so you know, the the um, one of the 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 interesting things, though, and this is the the early part of the book, which uh, you know, I, I think was actually just. Terrific, that part for me, because, you know, I, I, I knew of Sumner Wells. I hadn't heard of the scandal at all oh. and how he went down on and, you know, all the rest of that. But wh- so what, to speak. So, <laughs> or not. I mean, <laughs> well, yes. Well, so the 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 the, um, the striking thing is, I mean, Bullitt himself has has uh, William Bullitt has has his own sort of uh, gay dalliances that potentially I potentially, don't know. I mean, it's it's. Maybe he did, yeah. And then, and then, um, uh, Bullet's own sort of protege, who ends up going really high up, Carmel Offie. Carmel Offie, fascinating character, another fascinating character in this book. Yeah. But he is he is openly more pretty or less, much openly gay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and yet, and yet, so somehow, I guess what I'm getting at, what's what's striking to me about that part of it, because the book is, you know, this this rise of the paranoia, this rise of the security state, this rise of secrets, which then pushes, I mean. I mean, it's it's wrong to say that it creates the closet, but yeah, almost yeah. like solidifies solidifies yeah. the closet in a way. Um, but it's it's uh, uh, it's also the 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 rise of gay identity, right? Because that's one way. World to put War it. II is very crucial in this regard because uh, it's been referred to by a historian, John D'Amelio, as a kind of national coming out experience. Because you had all these gay people, many from you know America used to be a much more rural country, so you had a lot of gay people who may have been growing up in like provincial small towns or or rural areas. And because of the mass mobilization that the war demanded, they're all you know people of all different uh, economic backgrounds, social backgrounds, and sexual orientations are all coming together, and they're being sent off to war. And so you have lots of anecdotal evidence of gay people understanding that, oh my God, like I'm not 
this isn't just me, there are other people like me. So World War II is very important in kind of forming a kind of gay consciousness. And you see that after the war, especially. There's, there's, there's some novels, uh, um, Gore Vidal's uh, The City and the Pillar and Truman Capote's Other Voices, Other Rooms. There's, so there's, there's this visibility in, in, in gay literature. And then there's the Kinsey Report in 1948, which is decisive in, in uh, sort of alerting the public to the notion that um, gay people are much more prevalent than had widely been believed. But it's an interesting tension because the Kinsey <clears throat> study was, you know, was meant at least in theory to open up minds and to make yeah. people more aware of the diversity of sexual experience. And you might think that would lead to a greater tolerance, but there's a paradox that the opposite is what basically yeah. results. So the Kinsey study comes out and it's something like 10% of, of people, of Americans have had are either exclusively or, or bisexual or yeah. had at least one or sure. two experiences with right. the same sex. And 10% is more. Is, uh, am I getting that right? It's about 10% that. of <clears throat> it, was, it was only white men. Okay. 10% of white men between the ages of 18 and 65 were exclusively homosexual for three or more years in that period of time. So basically, you hear this figure one in 10, which I actually think is high. I don't think one, I don't, I don't think 10% of the male population is gay. Seems high, yeah. But that's basically kind of what, that's like the takeaway. Yeah. And yeah. this is a huge, this book sells 250,000 copies. It's, it's a giant. Yeah. Dense. And it creates a moral panic because exactly. all these Americans who just didn't really know that gay people really existed as as a group, yeah. they're like, oh my God, my neighbor, like if yeah. I think about like the 10 people on my street, right. does this mean like one of them's gay? So it leads to this kind of this kind it's of pink. coinciding with a red scare, which yeah. is very similar, right? And that homosexuals are secret, communists are secret. They're we all around us. And they're we all around know. us. We don't know what they look like. We can't detect them. And so the two get conflated and, in the public imagination. And there's also this idea, as I understand it, that gay people, because they're living in the closet, they have this special ability to lie and to engage in deceit mm -hmm. and to engage in a double discourse. And this might sound weird, but like when I was reading that, I almost thought about like how some people view Muslims. Ah, takfir, right? Is that the term? What's the well, term? The term? Takia. Yeah, yeah, which is this, this, I think, problematic and not totally accurate view that Oh, like Muslims, if they're in a situation, they can that, lie about something, right? Yeah, that, that, if right. it's if there's like a survival issue and yes. they're in a, that they're being threatened with death and right. stuff like that, that they can lie about who they are, that sort of mm. thing. I mean, not to go into that, yeah. But it's interesting how different minorities, and I think also applied to Jews. Jews, for sure. That, I was thinking Jews yeah, the whole yeah. time, like the whole conspiracy. That's why it's tied to communism yes, and all the rest of yes. that. Yeah, well, I, I had an essay in New York Magazine a couple of months ago, about, well, a couple of weeks ago about. The similar about how homophobia, it's very there, there's a conspiratorial element to it. You know, there's like the religious based uh, opposition to homosexuality. There's sort of the you know just kind of disgust based opposition to homosexuality, and then there's this conspiratorial opposition which sees gays as this. You know, if there's like two gay people in a room, right, then they must be involved in some nefarious activity. And they'll help each other out. They'll help each other out. Yeah, and it's very similar to anti-Semitism in that way. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but can you maybe just tell us a little bit, because I, I guess I struggle to fully grasp this, this idea that communism and homosexuality go hand in hand, that they're not actually discrete things, that a lot of communists are themselves 
in the thrall of sexual perversion and that if you are a gay person, that means that you yourself might be more um, susceptible to communist ideas because communism and homosexuality sort of, they require a similar sort of deceit and perversion. Can you just say a little bit more yeah, about I mean, that? I think there's sort of a, there's like a practical argument that was made to associate the two, which is that gay people are more susceptible to blackmail and therefore they are more susceptible to kind of the inducements of our communist enemies. But then there was a sort of ideological component to the conflation, which is that, which was, which was to conflate sexual subversion with political subversion. And that those who are sexually subversive uh, who kind of oppose, you know, God and family in the American way, uh, they are complicit or they are more, or they are ideologically simpatico with this political subversion that wants to undo the American system. And I think what's all, there was, there's an important moment in this sort of the Guy Burgess case, I think sort of crystallized this for a lot of people. He was the British diplomat who had been working in Washington and then fled, uh, with Donald McLean, his, former, his, his colleague, the two of them defect to the Soviet Union in 1951. And Burgess was a pretty flamboyant homosexual. Uh, uh, he made really no excuses and was sort of notoriously gay. What, okay, um, what does that mean to be notoriously gay at he was that just time? Open, he was just very open about it. He was very open about it and kind of so boast he, and brag about all his sexual assignations. He made no attempt to hide it. Okay. And, uh, and, and he's been, I mean, he's sort of a stock character. I mean, he's been, there have been books written about him. Is he the one with Stalin's, like, boy slave, or was that a different No, 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 that was the ambassador the to ambassador. the, um, Archie Kerr, the ambassador to the United States at the time. Well, the book is full of great yeah, So, like, that's <laughs> no, one, Burgess one reason is, to, Burgess yeah. is the Cambridge Five, which, that's you know, right. lot, that's lots have been written about and but but his being his being a communist was not i mean he wasn't blackmailed into it um but it was sort of because he wasn't black because he was openly gay right because he wasn't um blackmailed into being a traitor to great britain he sort of becomes this avatar of the the queer commie right he's 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 a he's you know trying to he's he's a He's making a mockery of of family and traditional traditional sexual mores, and he's a traitor to his country. And so he almost becomes this stock figure uh, of the kind of archetype of, of of the queer communist traitor. And there's this article that's published shortly after about the Hominturn, yeah, the homosexual international, right, which is a play on Comintern. the communists, the Comintern, the communist international. Um, so yeah, Burgess is a, is a very kind of important figure, I think, in sort of crystallizing this in people's minds, and therefore that all and like many stereotypes, right? There there might be one, you know, there might be like one very visible person who who fits that stereotype, and then all of that group gets slandered in that way, right? So there's like you know there's like there's there's like a Bernie Madoff, and like all the Jews get accused of being thieves, right? So like yes, there was there was a. A, a, a gay communist traitor and Guy Burgess, but then then all gay people get get associated with you know guilt by association. So you know what's what's interesting though is again it's it's one of these things that uh, as someone who's not gay who's not in the culture and doesn't really know this history. I like Shadi was like you know why this book is such a page turner is because living in D.C. you know D.C. but it's all these stories of even people and you know history that you know but a whole dimension is revealed. But it's 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 um, it's this question of someone like Carmel Offie who is openly 
uh, flamboyantly gay, yeah. almost before there is an idea of what gayness is. I mean, do you have a sense of, of I mean, the modern idea of gayness, the, the modern identity of gayness. That comes around the late 19th century. So I would it say does. by so, yeah, then. Tell me about that. Like, so what's the what's the sort of genesis of of gay identity? Because one way I read the book is the is the birth of modern gay identity as like creating a uh, a mass consciousness of uh, a minority group yes. in the United States. But then, you know, at the early part of the book, before all of this is happening, there are people who are openly flamboyantly gay yeah. and are functioning, navigating the society, which is discriminatory against them in a lot of ways, puts up barriers, but they are smart and they manage to get through. So I don't know, on that sort of birth of identity early on, I mean, what's is there is there something there about like that sort of I mean, early the, the late nineteenth century in Germany? Uh, that's really that's when the well the term homosexual is coined in I think eighteen sixty eight by a Hungarian scientist or sexologist, right? Mm. And then in the late nineteenth century in Germany, and then in the early twentieth century, you see sort of movements for gay people, homosexuals. Mm. Um, Identity this, movements, right? This identity, this understanding that these are not just acts, that this is actually an, an, an identity like other types of identity, and that a, there's a homosexual person, not just homosexual acts, mm. right? And so that's that's building in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And, and, and that's revolutionary in a sense because... Well, I think you know, gay people have always existed, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I don't doubt that like in the 18th century, there may have been people... There, I think there, there, there were people who understood themselves as same-sex attracted, but it doesn't become scientifically sort of studied or acknowledged. Reified, maybe. Reified yeah, until yeah. the late 19th century. But it's fair to say that it was seen more as something, homosexuality was something you did. Yes. It wasn't so you someone were. you were. And then there were, I mean, look, Gore Vidal, very famous writer, yeah. he never accepted the notion that he was gay or the notion that there were gay people. He said there were gay acts, uh, and this is a very American thing to kind of, you know, to kind of label people. But, you know, he never, he was obviously gay, Right, but he never—he kind of stubbornly re re rejected that identity. Interestingly, but, but it is interesting. I mean, that's one thing that I actually—that's another thing I didn't actually know uh, that I learned from your book about Vidal. I knew or, he was uh, gay. I didn't know that he—that he stubbornly yeah. like rejected the identity. Yeah. No, but I, because that—that that, again, I think sort of, uh, t I think underlines the the bigger arc of the book, which is again this sort of the development of this identity through adversity, through again yeah. this this emergence of the national security state, which is I don't know, just sort of like a, a fascinating paradigm to to think about this stuff through. Well, I do think gay people were forced to um, acknowledge this identity because of the adversity they faced, because they were basically told this is illegal. Right, you are illegal. Uh, you're evil. You're sinful. You're criminals. And that I think that had a role in in sort of solidifying this identity because without it maybe maybe there wouldn't have been so strong a gay identity. And you think about it like you know Frank Kameny, who's the first government employee gay person who's fired to actually challenge his firing. He's basically the first person to come out. And you know if there hadn't been this oppression, would that have happened? Right? If there hadn't yeah. been this this oppression, would someone like that have said, "Hey, this is wrong." Stop doing this to us. I am a homosexual or a homophile is one of the terms that we used at the time. But it's not just gay people who are targeted. And this really did surprise me. A lot of heterosexual yeah. men yes. were targeted and cast under suspicion. And no one could really escape this. Like if you were a good dresser. Right. Like even Henry Kissinger, <laughs> like the ultimate ladies man right. of Washington, D.C. Yeah. There was even some speculation that he might have been gay. And Ronald yeah. Reagan. Yeah went out of his way 
he didn't he wanted to eliminate any hint yeah. that he might be a homosexual. Yeah. So I mean, it's just crazy to me that Reagan and um, Henry Kissinger and Kissinger are sort like try to walk us. I, I don't fully understand. Is it just because there was this perpetual paranoia and it was sort of like you're guilty until proven innocent? If you are, if you're seen in a particular way, especially if you're like Kissinger was a bachelor for quite some time in yeah. between his two marriages. Yeah. So like that's, you know, people start to wonder, or if you have a roommate right. who is a dude and yeah. you're like, you know, 45 age. or 50, right. like what's going on exactly. there? When those people might have just actually been bachelors who yeah. were sleeping around a lot with women. Yeah. So, I mean, walk us through this, like, this sense of paranoia and where that's really coming from. Um, I think it was just considered such a terrible thing. Homosexuality was considered such a, such a sinful, terrible thing that the slightest suspicion of it would set off alarm bells and make people very insecure. Um. And so with, you know, with, with Reagan, I mean, there's this story I tell when he was a young actor in Hollywood, one of the first movies he's in, Dark Victory, with Betty Davis, who's a happened to later become a gay icon. But, um, and this is during the era of the code, the production code, when you weren't even allowed to depict homosexuality on screen. But the director of the film, who was a, a bisexual British director named Edmund Goulding, basically wanted Reagan to play the role of the gay best friend in this movie. And the way Reagan describes it, he said that, he wanted me to play the role as if I was the sort of fellow who could sit in the ladies' dressing room, dish in the dirt with them as they got dressed, which is a very long and euphemistic way of saying he wanted me to play a, a <laughs> fag, basically, right? Um, and he's very, like, he's very angry at this. Like, he, he doesn't even want to play the role as an actor. He doesn't want to portray a character who has, like, a touch of lavender to him because that that makes him uncomfortable. And so you see the kind of lengths to which he's going to dispel this, this notion. Um, and then there's a really weird story where uh, he's running for governor in 1966. I, inter I interviewed this guy, and I don't know if this is true, but he told me that he was, he was volunteering for the Reagan campaign. And he was kind of into the folk music scene and he was organizing a, a folk concert for Reagan. And they, he made up all these posters that said Reagan camp on them because that's what you would call a music festival camp <laughs> now it happened so happens that this is just two years after you know susan sontag published her famous essay in partisan review notes on camp about the camp aesthetic you know which is a very kind of gay sensibility right and nancy reagan calls this young volunteer into the campaign headquarters because she's like paranoid that this guy was like a plant from you know the democrats or something and was trying to you know smear ronnie as a as a homosexual or something and she's yelling at him demanding to know why would you make up these posters with my husband's name and camp on them um so it's just this it's just this how uh, and yet yet at the same time we know the reagans have all these gay friends particularly nancy in particular i mean there's a page in my photo insert it's called all the all the first ladies men and it's just nancy and all of her you know her gay hairdressers and designers and courtiers and walkers right and so they it's this strange dichotomy where uh they're surrounding themselves with gay people yet don't want it to be acknowledged and there's a fear that like the, like like the stench of it might rub off on on reagan and there was actually a White House staffer during the Reagan administration. He presumably he's estimating, and it's a guess, so he's yeah. probably overstating it. But he estimated, if I recall, that um, out of fifty five hundred 
Reagan White House political, political appoint- appointees, well, ex- executive branch, political executive branch appointees, a, as many as a thousand were gay, which would suggest close to twenty yeah. percent. Probably like an over, but that's still like it just goes to show that even under a Reagan administration, while the um, the rise of the religious right and there's much more attention on these moral questions, that Reagan that there were a lot of gay Republicans oh, yeah. who, you know, wanted to serve and did serve. Yeah. Is I, it, yeah, go ahead. is there, is there a sense, um, that's not fully clear to me from the book and maybe there's just not no statistics of it. I mean, it's, it's always estimated largely because of the sort of furtive secret nature of the whole question, but, um, that, that as the course of the 20th century, uh, progresses, more gays are like drawn to Washington, over time, or is it? Would you say it's about standard? Because you know, one thing that strikes me, for example, is is this sort of like ups and downs in in throughout history yeah. of it's never acceptance until the 90s, but it's this right. sort of and and you have you have FDR who is you know an aristocrat of sorts, yeah. and he has a kind of like aristocratic attitude towards it, not approving, but like you know, it's it happens, you know, not a big deal. Uh, you have Eisenhower, who's bringing more of this sort of, uh, you know, uh, sensibility of the the Midwest to sort of mm-hmm. middle America, which is a lot more repressive, a lot more so like, and then with the Cold War, the, the sort of secrecy regime comes on. Um, and then you have Kennedy, right, who comes up as this, again, this kind of nobility that yeah. comes up, but it's a next generation nobility, right. very tolerant, yep. but again, kind of, you know, like not, not embracing and open in no. any sort of way. Right. Um, so I don't know. And is there, is there a sense that, that, that Washington becomes more gay over that time or there it's always sort of attracted to a certain kind of person like that's attracted to Washington? I think it's like patterns or it's um, phases. And I think it's like the new deal. I think a lot of gay people come to Washington just because the story of gay people in 20th century America is a story of urbanization, right? It's people fleeing small towns and going to cities. Um, and so I think for Washington, it's like the new deal. Because uh, the city is built, it's the population is doubling within ten years, and it's a way to kind of um, escape the prying eyes of a small town and maybe become more anonymous in a big city. But then there's this repressive period during the McCarthy era in the 1950s. Um, but then another major development is in 1975, the Civil Service Commission lifts the ban on gay people being able to work in the federal civil service which makes Washington almost de facto one of the most gay-friendly, overnight becomes one of the most gay-friendly cities in the country. Most cities don't have anti-discrimination statutes, and now you have the biggest employer in the nation's capital is now open for gay people to, to serve. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it comes and goes in these, in these phases. But I mean, it gets back then to the question maybe of, of progress, which Shadi sort of started us off on earlier. Um, I don't know, it's something Shadi and I always go back and forth on this, this concept of progress. Clearly, there's, there's uh, an evolution in attitudes here, and which is, you know, from my reading in any case, is sort of accompanied by this evolution of gay identity as well. Like modern gay identity also sort of comes, comes as and alongside, and is, as we were saying earlier, is born through this adversity, which itself uh, is almost, you know, I mean, Again, not to say that it was better before the national security state. It was still repressive and the closet was still there, but it was it was different. It almost like this. It's a process of the birthing of this modern identity. Um, and so I don't know. Yeah, sure. There's a there's more acceptance um, and fewer suicides. And yeah, sure. That's that's 
a kind of progress. I guess what's striking to me about the book, which what I really liked about the book, is that in its sort of synoptic view of things, it's it's a broader social history than just a story of progress. I, it struck me as, you know, a lot of civil rights books are books about a progressive story. Um, what I liked about this book is that obviously it's a book about, you know, personal liberation. It's a book about, again, a community emerging uh, cohesively. But I didn't think it was like a civil rights book. I didn't think it was like a progressive history book. Well, I wasn't I wasn't writing about the gay rights movement, right, per se. Right. I mean, I write about gay rights activists. I write yeah. about the Mattachine Society, which is the, the first real sustained gay rights organization in the United States. But I, wa- I wasn't writing a history of the gay rights movement. That's that's Those books have been written. Sure. I was more interested in writing about gay people and political power, gay, really gay people in the closet. I mean, that's really what I was writing about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which hadn't been written before. Yeah. So. And I think that, like, from my perspective, it's not even just progress when it comes to attitudes towards gay people. It's that I just, I still have trouble grasping how the U.S. was not a police state in the 1950s, but there were aspects of it. For gay sound, people, it sort yeah, of was. Well, for gay people, yeah. for sure, but even more broadly. Even that bridge-playing lady, right, who gets yeah. snitched, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> snitched on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah like, there is this culture of informing that the FBI— yeah. like, So the fact that J. Edgar Hoover, which I think a lot of relatively young Americans like myself, the idea that there was an FBI head— for three decades. Longer than that. Long, yeah, God knows 1928 how 1928 until 1972. Oh, my God. Okay, Almost that is, 50 years. Okay, that is crazy. 45, 40. It's crazy. Yeah. And he is someone who just didn't seem to be concerned with, like, constitutional protections. No. <laughs> he was just running roughshod. He was just pretty much, you know, yes. a state within a state. Absolutely. And to think that um, someone like that basically is having files, very long files on a lot of people. And the FBI could basically investigate any American citizen that they wanted with relatively little oversight during this period. I mean, it's remarkable how far we've come since then that... Um, well, Donald Trump would tell you the FBI hasn't changed at all. So. <laughs> well, that, I mean, well, no, no, but, 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 but again, you know, it, it's, it's also interesting, right, that that doesn't exist before largely because there's no, there's not the capacity to it. it. It's one of these things that arises in America. And we still tell ourselves stories about, you know, America progressing, but it's just an episode of like particular darkness. And I think a longer story. Again, I don't know. This is me and Shadi sort of quibbling over the concept of progress. But we but, weren't a proper democracy. Like, ah, as as recently ah. as the 50s and 60s, we were not like when we think about what democracy is and the protections that are involved in that concept, I think that the U.S. almost seems like a foreign country if we go back half a century. And I mean, foreign in the quite, like, we can't even get our heads around the idea that our own country could have been like certain black people were not enfranchised at all. Of course, that's true. Of course, yeah. No, but but I guess for me, and this is why I like books like this, uh, because... You know, I mean, again, I, I, it's interesting that that Shadi read it as a as a story of progress, and I read it as a as like I think a really good snapshot of America. You know, like for me, it was a book about America, um, rather than a, a story of of America's progress. I guess is what it comes down to. Again, I'm not denying that yeah. there isn't so, such a thing as progress, but like I I appreciated the book for not having that sort of progressive element to it, in the sense that that like I I just you know I, I guess I, I don't I don't tend to approach things like like America as a as a, as a 
project of self-improvement all the time. I just don't. It's like, at some point, it's repressive. At some point, it's not. Like, and it's fascinating that that moderns, us, me included, Shadi, like, yeah, we, we tend to forget about J. Edgar Hoover. And that's why reading this book is so good, because you see exactly that we had a fucking Gestapo. And in fact, when you look at it in the goddamn, like, concept of the Cold War, the mirroring between, yes. like, the Soviet Union yeah. and the shit we were doing, it's remarkable. Yeah. It's really remarkable. And yet, no, we are the free world, and they're they're the barbarians over there. So again, I'm not I'm not pulling a, a Daniel Bessner or a Glenn Greenwald here, being like, oh, you know, it's all the same. It's not. It's it's very different. And I, I'm not pulling that shit. But I, I I I I'm not like a fan of this idea of like this is a redemptive project. Okay, but let me push you. Like, why why are you so opposed to that narrative if you yourself are acknowledging that on these specific issues? the role of the FBI as a sort of pseudo Gestapo, for example, like we are a lot better if we focus on those particular developments. Like why can't we say that, maybe it's not a redemptive story because that has religious connotations, but why can't we say this is a story of betterment, of improvement, of progress, that America, I mean, thank God we live in 2022. I mean, if you go on Twitter today, Everyone is talking about how terrible America is and how we're on the brink of civil war. And they don't even realize that 2022, on at least from my perspective, any measurable indicator is much preferable to the 1950s. And I just feel like utterly grateful yes. to be alive in this moment. I do, too. All I'm saying is, like, I think the, an appreciation of the history as as not something we've gotten over, but that's something that's always possible is the right way to approach things. So for me, I don't think we're over the possibility of another fucking J. Edgar Hoover coming in and, and like creating that kind of stuff. I don't think we've learned in some sort of way to get better on this. So look, I mean, I, I, here, let me let me turn to you, Jamie, on this, because I, I want to push you on it on this question of progress. Um, I think it was in The New York Times uh review of your book, which is overwhelmingly positive. Mm -hmm. um, they mentioned the 2019 article in The Atlantic you wrote, yeah, uh, which I went back and read. Yeah. And then I, I also read your New Yorker article just now from uh, New York Magazine, New York Magazine oh. article. Yeah, yeah, uh, it, from the other, the other week, yeah. And um, so the, the, uh, the Atlantic 2019 article is uh, basically the progressive article. But against progressives in a way, like it's it's the article saying we won, yeah. we did it. Yeah, the the battle is finished. Yeah. We've achieved everything we set out to achieve. That like we are full equal, equal citizens in America right now, and it's it's a it's a very good broadside against the sort of like fundraising complex that is, you know, not it's not just confined to gay issues, but just in general, yes. very broadly. Uh, that keeps fundraising over this sort of question. But then your article just now about groomers ultimately is what it's about. And it's it strikes me that it's it's a kind of, uh, I don't know if how you take the two articles, if you take them together, like whether it's a little bit of like, huh, well, some of this bad shit can come back. Like, because the, the it's, it's using your book and, it, you know, for people who haven't read the book, it's a good sort of summary of a lot of the arguments in the book that you make the case that in fact... Um, you know, this darkness still exists in a lot of ways and it can get dredged up and it seems to be getting dredged up again with this groomer stuff. This like weird, yeah. paranoid, uh, you know, conspiratorial, yeah. all the stuff that, that in fact uh, informs a lot part of the book and like the lavender scare and the rest right. of this, right? Well, the Atlantic article is about, I argued that gay people have achieved legal equality, which they have. I mean, we can marry, we can serve in the military and there are now anti-discrimination laws to protect us from being discriminated against and 
housing and unemployment and whatnot. Um, so in the kind of discreet question of, you know, are gay people legal citizens, I believe that I stand by that. The article I wrote for New York, which was sort of tying this current debate, hysteria, if you want to call it, about, you know, groomers and public schools. And okay, for people who aren't aware of the groomer controversy, because I feel like it's a little bit online, I think ordinary oh. people are not aware of what... Laws are getting passed in... Well, there's a law, the main law was in Florida, the, the so-called don't say gay bill, which makes it illegal to discuss sexual orientation or gender identity to students from kindergarten to third grade. Um... Okay, so I, I remember seeing debates about that. A couple months ago. Yeah, yeah, but I couldn't really figure out, this is part of the problem with all of these very polarized debates. It's very hard to know what's true right. because one side is saying something, the other side is saying the complete opposite, and then you can't really trust a mainstream right. institution to adjudicate in a fair, in a fair and I mean, appropriate way. So I, I do believe that there are some school districts where there may be teachers who are probably introducing some inappropriate subjects. I don't think queer theory should be taught to, I think queer theory is bullshit in general. I don't think, I certainly don't think it should be taught to young children. What is queer theory? Oh God, I mean, they can go, we can go on and on about that. Well, but if you had I to mean, summarize it, uh, I have a general sense because I, I, how do I even, uh, it's so convoluted and. It's like Marxist. Uh, it's just kind of Marxist approach to sexuality and sexual orientation. Um, Judith Butler. Um, uh, that gender and gender is a social construct mm, is mm. part of it. Um, I don't think gender ideology should be taught to young people either. I do think it's happening in some schools, but I think it's become it's become exaggerated, and it's become the, the internet and Twitter has this ability to kind of make it seem as if you know something isolated in a particular school district is happening all across the country, right? And unfortunately. There's this rhetoric now that teachers, and particularly gay ones, are grooming children, which is essentially associating gay people with pedophilia, and you know, for, which is a long-running trope. Yeah, for yeah. gay men, it's basically like the blood libel for gay men, and and uh, it's it's terrible rhetoric. Um, but uh, so I, this essay I wrote for New York sort of places that discourse in this long history that I point to of the we spoke earlier of the kind of conspiratorial uh type of homophobia that sees gay people as kind of lurking in the shadows and and um operating in sort of nefarious malicious ways but i don't i mean i don't think this is this is not a this is when i wrote in the atlantic that gay equality had been achieved i didn't say homophobia had been eliminated there's still homophobia and there probably always will be homophobia, but that doesn't mean that gay people aren't equal citizens. Mm -hmm. These are two separate things. Yeah. And you can't legislate against homophobia. I mean, in the sense that you can't, I mean, you can. I mean, some people think you well, can. Well, you, you can legislate it against in terms of discrimination laws, and I would support that. People shouldn't be discriminated, discriminated against because they're gay, but you can't legislate what's in people's hearts, right? So you can't legislate against people calling gay people groomers. They're allowed to do that. I don't like it, but I also believe in free speech. So I am, I mean, I, 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 I am still optimistic. And, and when you look at this history, and you said it yourself, I mean, how terrible was it in the 1950s for gay people? Their very existence is illegal. Uh, they're medically pathologized. They're chemically castrated. They're institutionalized in mental hospitals. They're uh, condemned from every sector of society, you know, organized religion, the media, whatnot. To go from that to today, 
it just gives me great faith in the American way, right? I mean, to, in, the, in the ability to persuade, it's an incredible story of persuasion. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, for gay people to go from that, from the most despised minority in America, so despised that they can't even announce them, they can't even identify themselves as such as belonging to this minority, that's how despised they were. To go from that to today where every corporation is, you know, has a pride flag and they're all going out of their way to, you know, show how friendly they are to the gay community. And I mean, on my way here, like the Uber, <laughs> yeah. like the Uber is not a black car. I know. It's a rainbow. It's, it's a almost, rainbow. it's almost comical how absurd it's become. Yeah. Whatever. I mean, it's fine. You but know, it's like, that's amazing to think that's that where everyone who is right. taking an Uber. And so yeah. how did that happen? How did we get from this terrible dark period to where we are today? And to me, it's just an incredible story of the power of persuasion. And it really just makes me think, you know what? You make the argument, you have the debate, uh, there'll be setbacks, but you, but you, but you, you argue in good faith, and, you, and the American people will ultimately come around to your point of view. Okay, to the, that, that to me, because it is the most, because there, there has been no more dramatic transformation in attitudes, in public opinion, in attitudes, on, than on this issue of homosexuality. But there's been no I, more. There's been no true. issue, no other issue in, in in America, where there's been more, a more dramatic shift in public opinion over a shorter period of time than on the question of homosexuality, and that's worth. That's worth. Why, how did that happen? Why? But one might argue it's not just persuasion; it's radicalism, it is mobilization, it is. It's not just like we're going to have a conversation and persuade you. It's, we are going to make this happen. I mean, I think that's what some who are, you know, maybe on the more radical left side of the gay rights movement would say. Um, it's not, persuasion isn't the whole story, is it? Um, well, those, those radicals were persuading people in a way. Um, I mean, last year was the first, poll that showed a majority of Republicans support gay marriage. Oh, wow. 2021, 55%. How did those people come to the position now, right? This, is, this was a party that supported a marriage amendment to ban gay marriage in the Constitution. How did that happen? I think it was, I mean, part of it is just sort of natural, environmental, the, the fact that there are gay people everywhere, right? So even in the most conservative right-wing families, you know, there are, there are gay people. And so you just, you know, those people are coming out. And you know, at some point, it's like that really conservative Republican state senator, like he might in theory rail against gay people, but like he has a gay daughter, you know? So like, how's he gonna, so that's happening. Multiply that by th tens of thousands of people, right? So that has a, that has a role in, in, in this. One might argue that social pressure also plays a role that if you're, if you're a, a republic, if you're a Republican and you're answering a poll, it just, it's so, it's very hard now to state openly that you don't support right. gay marriage. But it didn't, but 10 years ago or 15 years ago, it wasn't like that. Right. But, but part of that what's, is, yeah. But, so I think what's changed is that it's younger people, right? This is this younger, even younger conservatives. They're even more supportive of, of gay rights than, than older ones. And so I just think, um, I, I really do put it down to persuasion, to, 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 Debate and conversation and expression. That's what that's what changed attitudes. 
That's it for the main episode. Join us in the bonus for a lot more. We debate if we learned anything from past moral panics like the red and lavender scares, whether the culture war over trans rights spirals out of control this time, and if queer ideology is actually homophobic. To hear all that and more, please consider becoming a paying member at wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. See you in the bonus. Thank <laughs> you.